This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, February 10th, 2023. I'm Jason Breipel. And I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford and Roth. In honor of the State of the Union this week, Jason and I are doing a State of the Workforce, where we're going to have a frank and open conversation about what's going on in the executive branch right now. Jason, I figured we should start by telling the audience a little bit about us. They're so used to hearing us host these programs with so many incredible guests. And on this show, we're going to give all of our listeners the opportunity to learn a little bit more about their hosts and what we do behind the scenes when we're not producing Fed Talk. Do you want to kick us off with some information about the firm? Absolutely, Natalia. And I think that this makes a lot of sense when we're focusing on the state of the federal workforce. Uh, And, you know, I think about this program um, as one vector of the way that we do our work at Shaw, Bransford & Roth. We're a federal employment law firm that's been around for 40 years. um, And we've long focused on representing uh, directly members of the workforce but also employee organizations, uh, particularly those in the management and the law enforcement space, uh, who we are registered lobbyists for several of them. And so we are advocates for federal employees, for their their professional organizations. We are defending and representing individuals and agencies in the legal context. And then we use programs like FedTalk and our Fed Manager and Fed Agent Newsletter to educate the federal community about these important issues that we're often working on on the other side of the fence. So I like to think about this role, and it's part of the reason that I've been here for over a decade, um, where we're advocating and representing folks. And then we're also educating that same community about these really important discussions that are swirling on around them in Washington, D.C., that oftentimes it's not worth paying attention to. Um, And so we try to separate what's important from the noise. Absolutely. And it's a two way street. I think what part of the reason that I have been here for, you know, almost four years now is because it's a really a two way relationship with the federal community from our client organizations. We hear from members every day about what they're experiencing, what their concerns are. We also have these conversations with Congress about what their concerns are and they have plenty. And then we use that in our advocacy, in our education. And it really helps 
helps shape the programs that like this one, where we talk to the federal community about things that matter, about hiring reforms, about open season, about all these different things going on within the government that when you're just focusing on your job, it can be easy to miss. So I, I you know, I completely agree with everything you said about the importance of being advocates. And I think that falls at the center of everything we do here at the firm. And so I've also, you know, really had a great experience here working with all of our clients. You mentioned that we do this kind of management side work. We also do this um, law enforcement side work. You know, I would say you probably spend most of your time on the management and executive side. I probably spend most of my time on the law enforcement side. What are some, would you say, of the cross-cutting issues that regardless of what sector of the federal workforce we're talking to, always seem to come up? So I start with the premise that federal workers are people too, and that they have far more in common with all other people who are out there in the economy uh, than they have things that are unique about them and their situation individually. And I think that that's really important. And I think it's a point that gets um, missed sometimes. Um, but there are issues that I think, and especially I've observed over time, continue to bubble for, to the top for a lot of different groups. Um, and one of those, uh, I'll start with this one coming out of, of the State of the Union this week, is concerns about politicization in our country, in our civic discourse, but also concerns about how politicization is creeping its way into the federal government, into federal operations, and even how people are conducting themselves in the workplace. And I think that that's a real risky situation uh, for our dem democratic government. Absolutely. And going back to what you said about how federal employees are people too, I think that's a concern among a lot of Americans. Um, you know, this idea that politics is becoming such a shining light that it's hard to just navigate your normal day-to-day -day life without this kind of hyper-polarized polarized fixation on politics, where I think that problem is amplified within the federal government is the fact that our workforce is supposed to be nonpartisan. You know, we were built on this idea from the Pendleton Act, you know, in the 1800s of rejecting a spoil system, having an apolitical merit-based workforce that was obviously fortified through the Civil Service Reform Act um, and was really designed to ensure that the federal workforce can deliver services to the American people in an equal and equitable way. And today, as these political concerns become so so augmented in our current society, that's becoming harder and harder. And definitely hearing that from the workforce a lot, especially on the law enforcement side, where the importance of an apolitical, you know, driven by the law and not by people, um, people I say like government of laws, not of men type type idea is so important. And the politicization is really, really straining that system. Well, and it, I think it's not surprising, at least not to me, that public officials are kind of caught in the crosshairs, particularly civil servants, whether they're a law enforcement officer or a career senior executive. 
uh, a lot of the statutes, the laws and rules that are governing our country came from many years ago, often many decades ago. Um, and Congress hasn't necessarily kept those up to date. And so presidents use their executive authority. And as we see preferences between Democrats and Republicans go back and forth, uh, those civil servants are, are, are executing the law and using the powers that Congress gave their agency. But I also think that they're increasingly put in a very tough position. For example, we saw about the border and, and some of the, the accusations during uh, the, the State of the Union around uh, the president's culpability for people dying from fentanyl coming through the border. We, we've had border security issues for many years, we have uh, last had a major immigration law update in the 1980s. And, and so, again, I come back to thinking about the folks we're representing. How do we set them up for success uh, as opposed to finding a way to make somebody a scapegoat, which is unfortunately kind of where the discourse in Washington tends to focus? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad you brought up the example of immigration because I think it is probably the most easy to understand example for the American people to really see how this tension between Congress's non-action or only action through oversight, the executive branch kind of rapidly changing policies with each new administration, and the workforce just kind of unsure of what direction to go, who to follow. It's not even clear what the law is sometimes. Um, and, and that really puts a strain on the workforce and requires them to be in some really, really difficult positions. And we've definitely seen that a lot lately in the immigration context. But I, I think it's fair to say that it's happening across federal agencies. Even during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw how public health officials were put in that really difficult position of trying to use old laws to apply, you know, a really rapidly developing situation um, and the extent to which that that kind of led to accusations of politicization. Absolutely. We've got to stop here for our first break. Uh, when we come back in, we're going to continue this discussion on some of these cross-cutting issues that are affecting the state of the federal workforce. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with my colleague Jason Breifel discussing what's going on in the government right now. Let's dive back in to discuss some of the cross-cutting issues we are seeing across federal agencies. And we just talked a lot about politicization. And the other issue that I just hear about all the time is frustration surrounding um, federal pay. And I think it's important to recognize right at the onset that no one comes into federal service to make the big bucks. 
you can't compete with the private sector. We probably never will be able to compete with the private sector. But that doesn't mean that issues surrounding systemic undercompensation don't prevent particularly leaders from staying in government, from bringing their skills back to government. And it doesn't shut a significant number of the population who simply can't afford government work out of being part of public service. And so, Jason, I'll toss it over to you. Can you tell us about some like the history of these pay issues, particularly issues like pay compression that federal employees constantly experience? Absolutely, Natalia. And I think that this is uh, the situation with pay compression, especially, uh, which is when uh, people are bumping up against a statutory or a regulatory cap. The Congress has said you can't get paid more than X, Y, or Z. Often it's pegged to uh, the vice president or the president's uh, pay. And the reality is we are still operating in a general schedule pay classification system from 1949. Um, And in the 1940s and 50s, we had a very clerical heavy workforce with the predominant um, concentration of employees at the lower end of the GS scale. Today, we have the total opposite. There are almost no GS one through fives. And we have hundreds of thousands of employees at each level of GS 13, 14, and 15. And so the the consequences of failing to deal with the system are are an issue. Uh, In the meantime, Congress has created all these weird agency-specific systems. And so there are a lot of haves and have-nots, which which cause personnel to jump from agency to agency, chasing some of those those benefits or that compensation. Well, and it's like we enough with the private sector. As you mentioned, now we have to compete internally. Well, it's it's competing internally, one, but I also think the bigger issue is we're taking incentives away. At the end of the day, people go to work not because they want to work, even though many federal employees are extremely public service motivated. In fact, I think uh, that, that OMB and OPM and the powers that be know that federal employees are so public service motivated that they'll deal with being undercompensated systemically. Um, Margaret Weikert, the former deputy director of management at OMB, said this publicly in public remarks at the Senior Executives Association Summit. Um, and, and I think f- especially for those managers or leaders or even those senior technical folks who we really need for some of these IT and modernization projects, the reality is the risks don't meet the rewards. And, and folks are going to walk with their feet. And I think that that is really the point that needs to be made. This is not just about paying federal employees more. It's about making sure agencies have the talent to meet the needs of the American people. At the end of the day, this is all about getting the American people the services and support that they need. And when you cannot compete, when people are leaving agencies, when people have no incentive to come to agencies outside of public service motivation, you're preventing the federal agencies from having the talent to meet the needs of the American people. I think one area we really see it is um, within our federal criminal justice system with the hiring and retention of federal prosecutors and civil attorneys. 
it's really unfortunate, but most U.S. attorney offices have become a training ground for the defense bar because it looks really nice to have maybe one or two years at a U.S. attorney's office on your resume, but there is no incentive to stay in a U.S. attorney office because they're not even on the GS schedule. They're on one of those, like you discussed, like kind of carved out, administratively determined pay schedules just for your AUSAs. Um, And as a result, they have this undercompensation issue, both, of course, with the private sector and with Maine Justice and other federal agencies. And as a result, they don't stay. And then you have federal um, prosecutors who are going up against former federal prosecutors with a lot more money, a lot more resources. And it's really hard for our federal criminal justice system to compete with that. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in Washington about accountability. You know, it's it's a very handy one word that could mean anything you want it to, um, depending on who is using it and how they're using it. Um, but, but it seems like it's, we're focused on getting a scalp as opposed to, well, we told this agency to do this job and did it do it? And if it didn't, what can Congress or, or the executive branch do to improve how that agency is accomplishing that mission? And, and somewhere we've lost that thread, you know, in our discussion, maybe it is that, that the effects of that politicization, but, but, you know, if you connect the dots on that to pay, the government recognizes we need talent. The the contractor executive compensation reimbursement cap is over $600,000. So the government knows it needs to pay talent. The question is whether it's willing to pay its own talent what they deserve. And I think the political answer is, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican administration, absolutely not. Yeah. And it's interesting how that's so... That's like such a bipartisan position. You know, it's we we see it from both branches of government or not. I'm sorry, both branches, but both political parties that really have that unwillingness um, to, to support, particularly on the leadership side, the appropriate compensation. It's much easier to outsource. One of the things you mentioned, Jason, was how. Congress has yet to modernize a general schedule that was really built for a clerical workforce. It was not designed for the modern professional workforce. Looking at Congress, looking at the things Congress does do and doesn't do, where do you think Congress is focusing and should be focusing? It's a good question. I think it's a bit early to see where the Congress writ large is going to be focusing, because obviously we're in a period of of divided government with the two chambers under control. Uh, they are still getting organized, you know, still figuring out who's on all the committees and what those those priorities for those committees are. A lot of those votes are happening, um, but I do think that we saw, and I was, I was actually a bit surprised by the level of kind of bipartisan uh, applause lines yeah. during the president's speech, which I think suggests that our lawmakers know that folks in the country are looking at them to do the jobs that they are paid to be sent to Washington, D.C. to do, which is to legislate the nation's issues. 
No, I agree. I thought it was really interesting during the State of the Union because it's felt like there has been so much polarization, um, so much kind of butting heads between the two parties. You know, even looking within the parties, what the Republican Party has been dealing with, their own internal struggles, and then to hear a State of the Union that was really focused on bipartisanship. Um, in, in one sense, I have a glimmer of optimism, but in another sense, I'm almost wondering if that tone is just not consistent with what's happening on the ground. Um, and if that disconnect is too large to be broached. At the same time, I think things like we just saw the Chance to Compete Act pass in the House. I think that's not insignificant. I think it's a sign that there are opportunities for even if it's very incremental and, you know, just small reforms that move us into a better direction. I think those opportunities do exist. And I think that Having that legislation passed really early in the new Congress um, is a good sign of what could be to come if the parties are able to come together on some of those more discrete issues. I think you're right, Natalia, and it's an important point that in a time of divided government, perhaps you will see more incremental change, but at least you're still going somewhere. And on that chance to compete act, which, which would significantly reform and improve competitive service hiring, it's a really big deal that in the same week or the following week when, when House Republicans were attacking the federal workforce for its telework posture and practices, that they recognize that we have a talent pipeline problem in that um, merit has not been at the core of, of the government's hiring program. Um, so again, I think that there's an opportunity for optimism and, and it comes down to where is the rubber meeting the road? Uh, are, are, are lawmakers focusing on accountability for, to inform lawmaking, on hearings to inform lawmaking, or just because they want to embarrass someone from the administration uh, and get on TV? Um, increasingly, we have more of one of those than the other in this town. But I think that, you know, look at the, uh, all of the COVID benefits and pandemic aid and, and the massive fraud, waste, and abuse we've seen there. Congress needs to work to tighten up those laws now and for the future, opposed to solely blaming agencies who executed the law as Congress wrote it. No, absolutely. And I think that you raise a good point there about the balance between Congress's role as the legislature, which is obviously its premier role constitutionally, and Congress's role in terms of oversight, investigations, checking what the executive branch is doing. And I would say that Congress has really taken up the role of the oversight and the investigator much more than the role of the legislature in recent years. I'm reminded of the show I did last year or in 2021 um, with the, it was a show that we hosted on the Administrative Procedure Act. And something that one of our guests highlighted was how 
all three branches of government have really shifted in place from the legislative branch, Congress legislating, the executive branch executing, the judiciary interpreting. Everything's kind of moved over to the point where the executive branch is really taking a premier role in legislating. Um, the Congress is really doing like oversight and investigations. And even the judiciary is now almost doing like pre-enforcement injunctions, nationwide halts um, on programs, and is taking that almost executive seeming place. And so everything is kind of moved over a little bit. And I think it's worth discussing the role of Congress as the oversight and the investigator and how that's going to shape up in this Congress, especially with, you know, a, a Republican House. Absolutely. And uh, we have to stop here for our second break, but we're going to dive back into that topic after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches, judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. My colleague Natalia Castro and I are discussing the state of the federal workforce. And right before the break, we were talking about in this era of divided Congress with a Republican uh, House of Representatives that has clearly stated its intention to conduct oversight and to hold the executive branch accountable. Natalia, what are you looking at? You know, what are you hearing across the community? You know, I know one of the things that folks are looking at is this uh, select committee on the weaponization of the federal government that has folks wondering, you know, is that something we need to be worried about or is it going to be, you know, just another one of these things making noise in Washington, D.C.? You know, the idealist in me looks at this committee and I think there is so much potential to really identify things within the executive branch that Congress can improve, tightening up some of these laws that have gone awry, uh, reassessing the level of classification that we have in the government. I think there are a lot of good things that can happen with this committee. I, you know, I remember that it was the committees in the 70s that were able to radically reform our um, domestic surveillance enterprise because there was a widespread recognition that the law, really not individual executive branch officials, but the law was not serving the American people in the best way. So that's the optimist in me. In reality, I think something that we have seen over the last couple of administrations is that when there is 
a one party White House and another party managing a branch of Congress, there is a tendency for the career workforce to become Congress's and the executive branch's scapegoat for so many issues. I mean, it just becomes so easy for the White House to protect their political appointees, Congress to come looking for for someone to hold accountable and and that career workforce to really become the subject of um, investigations that may or may not be there true fault or responsibility. And so that's something that I'm very cautious of. Small plug, um, our law firm, Shaw, Bransford & Roth, is hosting a webinar specifically focusing on congressional investigations for the federal workforce, making sure federal employees know how to respond to a subpoena, when to look to their agency, when to look to outside counsel, um, and really how to navigate the competing interests of their employing agency and their professional reputation. That'll be on February 22nd. Uh, Don't Get Caught in the Crossfire is the name of the webinar, and there will be a link to register in the description for this show. But I think that conversation is so important for the federal workforce right now, because as I mentioned, there are just so many competing political interests. And for a workforce that's used to being nonpartisan and apolitical, that can be really difficult to navigate. Yeah. And I wanted to use a couple examples, you know, to, to kind of bring some light to that and maybe the Internal Revenue Service and the $80 billion that uh, they received in the last Congress, and the House has already tried stripping away some $72 billion of that and, and passed that bill. It's clearly going nowhere. But, you know, for an agency like that, like, what is that situation going to look like? And, and if you're an official in an agency that is being asked these really tough questions, you know, what do yeah. they need to know? Because this political dynamic is, is very different than a, a workplace investigation or something like that, that they may be more used to. No, absolutely. And I think the IRS is a really good example. You know, I got the the notification today that IRS is going back to, or at least considering, reconsidering, hasn't done away with um, ID me, you know, which is that facial recognition software that probably 90% of the people listening to this program have some form of biometric scanning for their phone, for their ID, uh, you know, for their various devices. Um, And yet still it has become such a controversial point when a federal agency does it. And, you know, it's easy to ask, well, why don't I trust the IRS to have that? Well, the IRS is outdated technology. The IRS isn't known for good customer service. Is that the fault of IRS employees or is it the fault of, you know, a lack of attention paid to modernizing the IRS for easily 10 to 20 years? And I think those are the important conversations that Congress needs to be having. It's unclear if this oversight will provoke that conversation, although I think we would agree it should. I think so, too. And and I kind of want to flip the table and, and, and now talk about what the administration is doing on the other side of this, yeah. particularly with the president's management agenda, which is intended... 
uh, to strengthen and improve, you know, the federal workforce, uh, the business of government, and uh, how the government is serving, uh, providing that customer service. Um, what are you seeing there? What are you hearing there? Well, Jason, you know, I think the president's management agenda really outlines some great goals for the federal workforce, you know, strengthening and empowering the federal workforce, delivering excellent and equitable services, um, increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion, all phenomenal goals. But can we put them into action? Can the executive branch reach past the, 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 the strong rhetoric and get to real change? Um, is that change really even policy or is it cultural? I think those are the questions that need to be asked. And, and I think you could probably say better than anyone whether or not they're the questions actually being asked. Absolutely. Well, it's definitely 98% cultural. Yeah. It, it really is. We are our worst, our own worst enemies. Um, as, as long as the, the federal workforce sees itself as a bureaucracy, as opposed to a federal workforce, uh, a professionalized workforce, as long as it lives its life as a bureaucracy, I must follow rules. I must only do what I'm told. I can't think outside the box. I can't think about how to do things better. And the only way that we break that is by investing in our employees, truly investing in them. Um, training, professional development, fair and equitable compensation. And what I think I've observed over 20 years of the president's management agenda, particularly on the workforce vector, is there are always glossy reports that are written by contractors and there are never enough resources and bodies behind it to make it real. You know, if Take the story of the senior executive service in the 40 years since it's been created. Uh, it's basically been an afterthought in the management um, thinking for 20 years, since 9-11. And it's, we're increasingly demanding that leaders succeed in a 21st century when trapped within kind of 21st and 19th century constructs. And we talked earlier about you know, we're still in a 1949 classification system. We have, we, we force people to, to jump over hoops and to bend over backwards to make anything happen. And to, to me, to, to the management groups like the Senior Executives Association and the Professional Managers Association that we represent, the total absence of, of any focus whatsoever on the management cadre of employees in the federal government is simply inexcusable and unexplainable. And I've asked OMB and OPM, and no one can explain why why they're not even part of the story. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll go a little bit farther and say the complete and total lack of focus on non-collective bargaining unit employees. Um, I think there is a huge sector of our workforce that goes largely ignored. I was recently having some conversations with the law enforcement groups and, and they were emphasizing how, you know, 
we, especially in light of these really tragic um, news stories about people being killed at the hands of police, uh, murdered at the hands of police, and the difficulty of having conversations about, you know, training, when in reality, we need to be having conversations about recruitment and how recruitment impacts culture and Title V and whether or not this system is even setting us up to have the best and the brightest in our federal agencies working in federal law enforcement um, and the kind of impact that that has on the entire culture of some of these law enforcement agencies. I think you're absolutely right. It is a cultural issue, but it's a cultural issue that's tied to the structure of our government um, and the structure more than our government of our workforce um, and some of these really rigid systems that are designed to protect and are designed to serve that lowest level of the kind of general schedule and not the non-collective bargaining unit um, and, and higher end and outside that spectrum employee class. Um, and I think that regardless of how you feel about the size and the scope of government, the idea that government needs to work for the American people, needs to serve the American people, and that there's a level of investment necessary to make that happen, that should be a bipartisan goal. It should at least be a question. Yeah. And it's not. You know, to me, you look at the level of attention and oversight and care that Congress gives to federal IT spending. Yeah. Sure, it's important, you know, $100 billion or so a year. That's a lot of money. We pay the salary benefits and compensation of the federal, the career federal workforce is between 400 and $500 billion annually. I tried looking on USA Spending to figure out how much we spend on professional services contractors and other folks that we've outsourced, you know, the $631 billion that the government contracts with industry for goods and services it needs. I can't figure out a way to reconcile the two to figure out where should we invest more money in our in in our talent? Should they be government employees or should they be contractors? These are simply not conversations that are even happening, but they are critical to the ability of the government to do its job, to do it effectively and efficiently. And when Congress is looking for ways to better pay for things, we know for a fact that contractors typically cost three to five times more money than a federal employee does. Yep. We, agencies opt to, to make those extra payments because they know that those companies train their employees. But again, why, why don't we just pay, train our own employees at all? Now, Jason, I'm curious. I think one area that we have seen improvement, that has seen improvement for the American people, is on some of the you know work that's been made, particularly in this administration, around customer service. How do you view that kind of discrete area of progress in terms of the larger picture of the federal um, government's work? So it's not surprising to me that we're making more headway on customer service versus some of these other goals that seem to be focused more inwardly exclusively on the federal workforce. 
And again, it goes back to the basics. Why is the government here? The government is here to serve the country and to serve people and the businesses of this country, right? It's not to serve the workforce. And so there needs to be a better job done connecting the dots between the capability of the federal workforce with the ability of agencies to execute their their mission and deliver outcomes that are expected. And that exact reason in the, in the, the data that exists that shows where that connection is so real in customer service, customer experience, and how that ties in even with employee experience. It's so much more tangible. It's so undeniable. It, it, these are business metrics that you can't hide from. Uh, and I think that's part of why we've seen so much more traction there. At the end of the day, improving customer service means actually focusing on improving the things that government is principally here to do. And I think, as you mentioned, it's it's much more measurable, unlike other areas. But at that, we're going to have to stop here for our final break. When we return, we will wrap up this discussion uh, with a, a, a big picture look at the current state and the state as we move through this year of the federal workforce. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our last segment of the show, uh, talking about the state of the federal workforce. And Natalia, I wanted to, to dig in some more on a bill that cleared the House of Representatives a few weeks ago, and I think is something that we're going to continue hearing a lot about, especially as in the next few months, um, in the middle of May, the uh, public health emergencies from the COVID-19 pandemic will lift. And, and this is specifically around telework, hybrid work. How are we measuring if agencies are being productive, if their employees are working at all? Um, it's a big debate, and it really seems to be flummoxing agencies and political leaders. No, I completely agree. It's hard to, you know, you can't go on any federal trade press site nowadays and not see a story about telework. Everyone is talking about telework. Congress is talking about telework. And from my perspective, this idea of how much telework we should have, if we should have telework, I can't help but feel like it's the wrong conversation. Because I feel like we should be asking, are we meeting employees where they're at in the modern economy? Are we making sure that the federal workforce is competitive? And are we making sure managers can manage remote offices? Are we using telework as a tool to recruit more broadly across the country from positions that were previously localized? Are we using it to, like I said, meet employees where they're at? Um, I think my concern around the overall telework conversation is that if we're just saying one day or three days of telework, we're not making sure that it necessarily meets mission needs. I think there's a place for telework in some roles more than others, but 
I don't know. I can't help but feel a little concerned that we're not setting up our agencies for success when we're not making sure that managers know how to manage a telework teleworking workforce um, or when we're forcing everyone to come into the office and that doesn't necessarily meet the mission needs and ensure the most well-rounded employee. What are your thoughts? I think that we're focusing on the wrong questions or the wrong data points um, because the right questions are going to depend on every different agency based on its mission the composition of its workforce, uh, whether those folks have to be on site. You're you're a, a nurse at a VA hospital. You're you're a border patrol officer. You know down in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, you're um, uh, at an airport as a TSA uh, agent. There are so many positions that require you have to be there. Yeah. And there's about a million of such jobs, and then about a million knowledge worker jobs, and, and that's even just the big bucket. But then underneath of that, there are so many other questions um, around engagement, around innovation, around culture, around diversity. And while we are using these flexibilities to go out and recruit and hire, are we keeping those folks? How are we build, bringing them into the organization? And, and I think your point on what, if anything, is the government doing to prepare and enable supervisors, managers, and leaders to be successful in a very different world at work. Private industry has done that over the past three years. I'm aware of more conversations in the federal government that were happening in 2020 around these things than I see today. And it yeah. is extremely concerning to me that we seem to be ignoring this, this issue. No, and I think it's easy for some people to look at the pandemic as kind of like a blip in history, right? Like we went through this really difficult and troublesome two and a half years. We adapted some, you know, sectors adapted better, better than others. Those adaptation, now it's over. And like that bill that passed the house does, it's just like go back to normal. But there is a new normal. Either you, we need to take the lessons learned from that experience, continue having those conversations and not leave them in the past. And I think a necessary element of that conversation is how we manage the workforce. It proved so critical during the pandemic um, for managers to be able to, to shift their workforce in this way and still be able to maintain excellence of service, which some agencies definitely did better than others. Yeah, you're right. And the, you know, the union dynamic plays into this a lot. You know, the yep. stories at the Social Security Administration versus the IRS is a great case in point. Um, you know, there was an initial period when no one could go in. It wasn't safe. Uh, the IRS figured out a plan to, to get after it. Uh, it took SSA way longer. Um, and then now that we're in a very different phase of the pandemic or almost at the end, the heightened challenges for management are navigating the social situations or those tough situations where you have different people being treated differently because of their unique circumstances in your organization. And how do you deal with complaints about that? You know, you're being accused of discrimination, treating people unfairly, not communicating well, any of these things. And again, uh, this will affect 
productivity, engagement, culture, other factors that are going to be really critical for those agencies and their ability to keep the new staff that they're hiring and building the kind of the culture um, that they want going forward. Yeah. And I think on that point, something that especially in the law enforcement community was really elevated during the pandemic for I think the first time, at least to such a degree since 9-11, was the importance of mental health, the importance of supporting your employees as a whole person. I mean, there were so many law enforcement officers through the pandemic through the summer in 2020 that dealt with really just jarring situations in a completely new environment. And it's no surprise that as a result, Congress passed legislation like protecting the Public Servant Support Act, the um, Cops Counseling Act. These legislations really focused on supporting the mental wellness of an employee just as much as the physical wellness. Um, and that's something that I also think really needs to continue as we have these conversations about culture, about building that culture within a federal agency in this new hybrid model. I think those are really important conversations too. Yeah. And I, I want to emphasize the point that you just made, Natalia. People are not going to be slaves to their desks anymore if they, if they don't have to be. People don't want to work all of the time. You know, I think that our culture and our society realized that we were doing something fundamentally wrong when work became your life and employees are taking their lives back and it will be incumbent on leaders and organizations to figure out how do you get the best out of your employees when they are there and you can let them live the rest of their lives otherwise the the uh, employers that are going to succeed going forward are going to be those that figure this out and it'll be really interesting to see this experiment play out as different agencies take different paths. And it's so, and it's so important because while this is something that our generation figured out during the pandemic, this kind of new balance, this is the, this is the mindset that Gen Z is starting their time in the workforce with. We are seeing so many studies that indicate these issues, you know, and an employer that meets them where they're at, an employer that is flexible, that understands the whole person, that is what Gen Z is looking for. And if our government wants to succeed in recruiting that next generation of talent, this cannot just be a short-term change. It needs to be a long-term change. Amen. And I look forward to working with you and our, the groups that we represent and helping make that change. You know, we come from different backgrounds and perspectives, but I think that we're both folks who, at the end of the day, know that we need a government in this country and we can think we absolutely can do better. And, and part of doing that better is helping support our dedicated public employees. Uh, they really are here for the right reasons. We need to help them do their jobs. Couldn't agree more, Jason. And for all of our listeners out there, we want to hear from you. Never hesitate to reach out. Uh, you can email us through our newsletters at publisher at fednewsletters.com. Uh, you can also find us on all the social media platforms, Fed Manager, Fed Agent, and Fed Talk, as well as the law firm, Shaw Bransford and Roth. This is our way to communicate with you, communicate with us too. 
I think that's all the time we have for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Jason, thanks for sitting down with me. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Have a great weekend.